Welcome to Chicago's Bravest Stories. This is going to be a different podcast than normal because we're short two of our guests, but we're plus one with Josh Hill from the Cicero Fire Department and the uh, Frontline team, a proud sponsor of the podcast. But today we've managed to convince Ron Sarno to come into the studio and talk to us about the fire which is synonymous with Chicago Fire Department, the fire that took place December 1st, 1958. And Ron was uh, one of the survivors of that tragic fire that, that really changed a lot for the Chicago Fire Department. So uh, it's an honor to have you here, Ron. So thank you so much. I, you made quite a trek to get here. I came across you in your your documentary, not your documentary, but a documentary that you were featured in called Angels Too Soon. And how did that, how did that documentary come about? And did just somebody from Channel 11 just approach you and say, hey, would you like to be in this documentary? Uh, yeah, that's actually what happened. Um, last March, Marla and I go down to Mexico for the winter, spend a, spend a couple months down there. And one day... I was just sitting by the pool, and the phone rings, and it was a uh, the co-producer of Channel 11, and she asked me, is this Ron Sarno, and is this the Ron Sarno that was a survivor in the Our Lady of the Angels fire? And I said, yes. And she says, would you mind talking about it, um, about the fire? I'm... Uh, can I interview you over the phone? So I agreed, and the next day she called me, and she explained that they were doing a documentary and um, how she couldn't find anybody to talk to. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, I guess she found a few survivors, but nobody was willing to talk about it. So I did an interview with her on uh, an hour-long and uh, next day she called me and she asked me if I wanted to, if I would go on camera for a documentary they're making. And so that's how they, I don't know how she got my number or <laughs> it just, she caught up with me though. Right. Well, th through the power of the internet, we were able to track you down as well. Like Concetta, is that how? Concetta County. You call her County? County, Because. Yeah. I, I watched her on that on that documentary, and she she seemed to be reluctant to be on it as well. But you know she she spoke her mind. But yeah, you can tell that she was a little apprehensive to be a part of that as well. And there were some of the other guys, the two police officers. They were very upfront with everything like that, and I think just by the nature of their job, they're be a little more comfortable with talking about stuff like that. But I, I could see some of the other survivors really have that apprehension about talking about it. And this is, 1958 was a long time, but is, it, is that still fresh in your mind? Oh, yeah. Really? Um, <clears throat> talking, speaking about Connie, um, I told a, I asked the producer of WTTW, I said, you should really talk to, Connie, Connie Bellino. She was in my class. 
And um, my class had very, my classroom, room 210, had very few survivors. And uh, Connie had a, uh, I know Connie had a good story on how she got out, how she escaped. And uh, I called Connie and I said, Connie, you, you want to do an uh, interview for a documentary? And she was very reluctant. And she says, only if you do it. <laughs> so we, she came over. We did the interview by my daughter's house because we lived next to a train station and the noise from the train. Yeah. Uh, so she came to my daughter's house and um, she she I, I she just don't like to talk about it. Sure, I, I'm, understandably. I'm yeah, but uh, I, you know, like you said, Vince, it was a long time ago, and a. I mean, it's something I'll never forget. I, I think about it every day. But several years ago, I came to terms with it. I accepted that it happened. Just several years ago? Well, Recent, uh, so very recently well, you came to terms. You know, I, 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 I never had anything against talking about it, but nobody asked me about it. Well, <laughs> that's kind of what I was wondering. Yeah. Had you been interviewed about it before? Had people yeah. got your before the, yeah? In, in 19, uh, for the 50th, anniversary i was on um phil ponce wttw okay and he interviewed me and um but i, I i'm talking about general people friends and they right they always seem to be afraid to ask me about well it, it is a, a touchy subject it, like how do i talk to you about the most horrific thing that you've ever been through it doesn't just come up in normal conversation. So I could see cause it happens, you know, and Josh, you can back me up on this. It happens the same with us when people that we work with, they get hurt or severely hurt. You want to give them their space and you don't want to bring it up and you do want to talk about it because it, it, in my experience, it, it comes up because you're making fun of each other. That's how it comes up. In, it, our it, world, in, in our world, in our world, but in the civilian world, it doesn't work. <laughs> it like doesn't that, translate so the same way, right? Yeah. yeah, but that's how it, it comes see. up, and yeah. that's how the conversation starts. It's making fun, and then you kind of it. It never comes up in a serious manner first. Was talking to Josh about this before you came in, and in 1958, there's no such thing as mental help, mental health, and you you were 10 at the time, 10. 10? <clears throat> like, what do you do for a child? If 10 years old who just went through one of the most horrific things that I could possibly think about because the people who are listening who don't know or haven't watched the documentary or filed the story, you also lost your brother and your uh, sister, Billy and Joanne. Correct. You lost them in the fire too. So not only are you a survivor of the fire, but you lost your two siblings. Was there any help that, and you were, Obviously, with Catholic Church, and so everybody's telling you to have faith and do this. But other than that, was there any other help for you as a child going through this experience? Ah, uh, no. There. Just kind of walk it off, huh? Well, after the fire, the, the priest and the nuns said it was God will, God's will that this happened, and God only took the good ones, and. You know, I, I was confused about that. How does right. how does God will yeah. for ninety five kids, ninety five children, to get killed and three nuns? How did how does He will for that? 
And does that make you a bad person? Uh, right. And does that make me a bad person? Because right. God only took the good uh-huh. ones. Um, that's all they had. That's all they had for me. <laughs> well, I, and I ask this because you've, in the documentary, talked about that you went through some rough times. You went through phase of addiction and stuff like that, which in, in my opinion is an absolute normal thing that we've seen over and over again for somebody going through the trauma that, that you went through. Yeah, that's been untreated, completely yeah. untreated. Yeah, yes, I, um, you know, I was 10 when this happened. So for a few years, I didn't have really, I was numb to, to, to everything. I, I didn't have all those, uh, I had a lot of self-pity because people used to, in the neighborhood, used to point to me and say, that's the boy that, you know, yeah. brother and sister died. And um, and I had a lot of fear. I never I never liked to go in high buildings, uh, anything over two two floors. I would, you know, when I would, when I would get into a, a, a room over two floors, I would immediately, the first thing I did was plan my escape. Um, <clears throat> So things like fear and self-pity and um, feelings of that nature, I really didn't have. I, was, I mean, th- those are the ones I had early on. But then came anger sure. and, and, and depression and, and anxiety. And, you know, as I got into teenage and, and um, late teenage years, early 20s, and that's when I went to, went to drugs. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was... Were you living in Chicago at the time? I was time? living in Chicago. These were the hippie days. Yeah. And I was in college. Drugs were all around. And as soon as I took my first drug, oh, this this is the way I'm supposed to feel. Yeah. Not all these. What was your drug of choice to Well, at get... the end, the drug of choice was heroin. Yeah. I, um, but um, I, I did everything. Yeah. You were just trying. That was your coping mechanism for your, your pain, correct? Right. Because... You have the, the a combination of survivor's guilt, PTSD, and everything else yes. that that goes with yeah. that. So completely untreated, right? Yeah, that's the and I'm glad you brought that up. The guilt was huge, not only brother and sister, but friends. Right, friends right. I used to right. play that's with your every day. That's your yeah. community, right? And oh. now that's your identity in the community, like you've said. You know, now they look at you that right. That's who you are in the community now. So I had tremendous guilt. I'm, yeah, I, and and I was confused again. On one hand. I was glad I survived, but I had all this guilt. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, in the inter- interview, I don't know if they they played it on TV, they asked me, how did you deal with, I said, that's easy, drugs and alcohol. <laughs> that's what got me through. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh. and how long did that phase last before you finally hit rock bottom? And- um, you know, and, and I was uh, I was what they call a responsible I, I owned businesses when I was in my using drinking days, and but it lasts. A furniture business, right? Right, right. In fact, if this buildings like this is no are no strangers to me. This is the kind <laughs> of building I had in my furniture factory, old, and we used to rent to artists. What, what was the name of your furniture what, company? Uh, was Waco Manufacturing. Okay, but I sold it. Now it's was my son and son-in-law have it now. It's RSAC, RSA Seating. But um, yeah, I, I uh, you know I used to go go to work every day and you know 
I wouldn't usually show up on Mondays and Tuesdays, and but I, I, I was responsible. Halfway. You, were, you were a functioning, functioning drug user. Halfway, yeah. Yeah. Did the, the drugs and alcohol, in fact, help you? In the beginning. Yeah. But at the end, you know, well, before the end, they turned on me. You know, yeah. I, I well, don't. I don't know what point. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Obviously, but it. it you're. I would imagine that. It helped you in the beginning, so you just kept yeah. kept with it. What was the final turning point where you said, "I got to get some help. This is this well, is not working anymore." That's a good question. I um, I remember I had a year and a half year old daughter, and one day I was I was looking at her play, and I said to myself, I, "I'm never going to see her grow up. If I keep living the way I'm living, I'm not I'm never going to see her," because I was, you know, anything could happen car accident, overdose. And that was pretty much what pushed me. Yeah. Gave me the push. Wow. Well, well good. I'm 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 glad that something gave you the push and that you're still with us today. Yeah. Yeah, honestly that's an incredible <laughs> story of resilience, you know, especially yeah. in the world that we're in. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and you know, we see how you know that that ending how those things end. So yeah, it's just an amazing story of resilience well, that you're you know you're we with us, Yeah, we talk about the fact that you lost your brother and sister, but like you were saying, there were there were sixty kids per class, and there I hear the stories that they had to rotate chairs. You had to stand up for a little bit, then you had to go change chairs with somebody, and then you got to sit for a little bit. So, and that was like one nun per sixty kids, right? Correct. Is that how it was in room two ten? It was the two ten. I think we had fifty to fifty five children. Still oh. a lot. Oh yeah. Still, oh yeah. And that's a lot to fifty-five handle. to yeah. six. There's still a lot of kids. If you yeah. compare it to today. Oh, that would never happen today. Right. No. But uh, <clears throat> they. they um, yeah, my room two ten fifty-five children and one nun. And at at after the fire, we were off school for a week, so we had to report to another school, and they were taking our classes in. So they they said. As we arrived there on the bus, they says, just go back to your class that you were in. Uh, and mine happened to be 210. And um, walked in 210, and there were only 11 of us. And we knew. Oh, this is after. After. So uh, one oh. of the questions was, how long after the fire was it before you had to go back to school? Okay, one week. And we went to a school on the west side, Our Lady Help with Christians, for a half day. And then I think we stayed there for a couple weeks. And then we were, they split us up into three public high school, oh, three public grammar schools, Cameron, Orr, and uh, I don't remember the third one. But they put us on the third floor in all those sc three schools. One week later? This, this was the, two the weeks later. We are okay. But you went back to school a week after the fire. Yeah. So the, the December 1st, so December 7th, 8th, you go back Correct. to school. Correct. I think it was the Monday later. Right. I mean, by today's standards, that's ridiculous, right? I and then so. the, the solution was to just put you guys into the public schools and just continue on like nothing ever happened. Pretty much. Man. Yeah. Times have sure have changed, haven't they, Ron? Oh yeah, <laughs> for the good. For the good. Well, it's you know, speaking of change, like that whole experience 
has changed how we do fire prevention and uh, some of the things that there hasn't been a child who has died since 1958 in Chicago due to a fire. And that's because of all the changes that, that came about from your, your fire. So your, your building, the, um, Our Lady of the Angels, 1894, it was built. And so it was exempt from some of the, at the time, modern in 1958, uh, fire codes because they didn't apply to buildings prior to 1949. Right. So they were grandfathered in. They were grandfathered in, exactly. Corey, if you can put your drink down for one second, I want to tell everybody that this episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Chicagoland 1-800-BOARD-UP. Chicagoland 1-800-BOARD-UP. Two questions are likely to be asked in rapid succession when a building is damaged by a storm, flood, or other natural disasters. How bad is the damage, and how can I secure the building? Well, there's actually three questions. Is the beer cold? Is the beer cold? And... <laughs> How can we provide this beer to the victim? How, how do we keep with proper the assistance? Beer cold? <laughs> um, you guys have seen the logo out there. You guys know. I mean, what's everyone seen this this Dalmatian, right? Wearing the red helmet. Yep, Chicagoland one eight hundred board up. And the reason you guys have seen that is because they're out there and they're helping us out every day. Um, they spent ten years supporting the fire department, and um, and again, you you guys know their name. You guys have seen their logo, and that's because. You know they're doing right by uh, by victims out there. Yep, their victim assistance program, which takes somebody whose house has been damaged by fire or wind or water, they'll take them from the initial damage to the restoration to moving them back into their residence. This is a program that's not just a board up service. Chicagoland one eight hundred board up is more than just a board up company with their victim assistance and over 10 years of supporting the fire service. The documentary really made note of the fact that all the wood had that high varnish and that really flammable varnish all lo- like everything inside was wood. Correct. And they attribute the, the rapid spread of the fire and the, the really toxic smoke that was coming through to that, that years and years of that varnish. Yes. Uh, but when the fire actually started, like, you guys didn't have a, a, like a fire alarm or anything like that that went off, right? We did have a fire alarm and it did go off. Um, the, the way... What I remember is we're sitting in class. It was towards the end of the day, maybe two, two forty. Yeah, so it was very close for you guys to to get out. Like twenty minutes later, and you're all saved, right? Yes. And um, I think I remember the we're just handing in papers, and all of a sudden I heard a, a little girl screaming in the back of the room. And I looked up in the transit, black smoke pouring in. And the, the and transom for people who 
like don't live in the city. <laughs> uh, it's a window on the top of the door that you can open and close. And so that window above the door, black smoke was pouring in. Correct. It was maybe a third of the way open. Okay. It was, the window was 24 by 24 square. And the <clears throat> smoke was pouring in, thick black smoke, out of nowhere. So that um, the nun went to the back of the room. There were two doors leading to the hallway. She went to the back door, tried to open it. She did open it, and thick black smoke poured in more. So she closed it immediately. There's nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. So that's so room ten's the second of three rooms on that side of the hallway, Correct. right? It was right. the middle one. The middle. Middle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the fire was in the, the stairway there. And so was that the door she opened closer to the stairway or was the one that was further away from it? Further away. Okay. But the hall, so the hallways were going too, right? The yeah. hallways are the hallways were thick black smoke. Yeah. Couldn't couldn't even see. Yeah. So she shut the shut the door and you know, the kids started to panic, and that's about when the, when the fire alarm rang. Okay. So so you, you were already trapped by the time the alarm went off. Right. There was nowhere for you guys to go. Nowhere. Well. The window. The window, which we'll, which we'll get to in a minute here. Uh, but before I do, Ron, I just want, cause if you could just get closer to the microphone. Um, so you, the fire alarm goes off now. You have the one nun who is with you. And kind of, can you walk us through, is this nun, was she like what we would envision a, a Catholic nun in 1958, but smacking the ruler, smacking your knuckles with the ruler? Or, you know, was this, were they really what we envision as well, nuns she, during that period? Um, she was smacking, but she was a <laughs> tiny a tiny nun. She was maybe not even five feet and her tall. Name? Sister Mary Serapica. And, um, you know, she, she had on those garments with the square. They're very unique. Very I saw unique. that in the yeah. picture. It's yeah. very unique. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, black garment. And, um, you know, here she was in a room of 50 to 55, 9 and 10-year-olds, panicking. The room's filling up with smoke rapidly. Kids are screaming, jumping on desks. Uh, a, a horrible scene. Some kids just sat there and like they were paralyzed. Well, when you, when you first hear the story, the first thing that somebody who will relate to the, to the story to you will say is that the nuns were told that we're telling the children, put your heads down and pray. And there were actually children who were still found at their desks with their hands in the, the prayer position. Uh, yes. <clears throat> I didn't see, I didn't see kids praying at their desk, but you, you weren't given those specific you know, instructions. Yes, they did. Oh, you were. She, she said to take, uh, say the rosary. And she started saying hail Mary's. While the smoke is pouring well, in pouring and you're in. at your desk. Yes. And some children just ran to her for comfort. And, sure. You know, they're crying for their mothers and mommy and ran to her. And, and a lot of people held it against the nuns. But from my view, I look at it as 
here was here was a I don't know she was maybe 40 45 year old lady who was in a room with 50 kids panicking jumping jumping off desks running to the windows she was just trying to calm people she's down. She's a nun. Yeah. Like, right. She has no she's training. training. Right. Right. This is that's, I really wanted to get in that, too, because history has judged that very harshly. Yes. And I really want, that's what I was really interested in, and I was going to ask you about right. if, if you witnessed that or if that was. That, or, you know. That's why I wanted to bring it up. I wanted you to kind of clear the record on these nuns were doing what nuns do. They, right. She had no foresight and escape or what to do, and you have 55, 10-year-olds running around, and I mean, and I can't... And that's a handful only... if the building's not on fire. I mean, honestly, right. 55 sure. kids that age, you know, right. in a calm situation yeah. is very stressful. Yeah. So she was doing the best that she could with Absolutely. what she had. When did, when did it occur to you to use the window as a means of escape? Because you're on the second floor, right? Correct. Um, I, I, I started, to, I think I got halfway through a Hail Mary and I, and there <clears> was the smoke like really that, that prompted your decision to get out the window. And, and, and I started to gasp, sure. choke. And, um, so I, and I was looking, my sister was in my classroom, so I was looking for her and at the same time, where was she in relation to you where you sat? Um, uh, I don't remember. Okay. But we. You, but you you eventually linked up at one point Correct. together. Yes. So she probably came running to you because you're her brother. Right. And she, you guys linked up, and you, I know you made the decision to go out the window, and she didn't want to go. Correct. Um, we're standing by the window. Again, people, kid, children jumping on us over our heads, push, we're pushed against the window um and i the room was really you you couldn't even see three feet ahead of you and um at one point i turned around and i saw flames you know and in my head all the time i'm thinking hey the firemen are going to come with a hose up the stairs put the fire out and we'll walk out when i saw the flames i says to myself I'm I'm probably going to die now. And um, that's when I maybe said to my sister about jumping. And um, she really wasn't up for it. And that's... And you lost her at that point. I lost her with the panic and the pushing. and Well, you, you can't see flames are coming in. You have 53 other kids piling on top of you to get to that window. I mean, it would be hard for anybody to keep track of their sister in in those circumstances. But you, so you're still at the window. Um, how do you make your way out? Okay. What, from what I remember, I'm at the window, and I managed to pull my body up. So I'm hanging halfway out the window. Again, trying to get air is... The air was so important to get some air. And I'm hanging out the window, and then I remember—I don't remember making a conscious decision that I'm going to jump because I was, I was scared. And next thing I know, I'm out the window, 
I did a somersault in the air, saw the first floor, go, first, first floor window go by very quickly, and I hit the ground and fall on my back. But you landed on your feet, right? I, I landed on my feet and fell backwards. Right. So um, then shortly after, the roof caved in. But um, Were you injured from the, the fall? Did you? No, no. broken bones. Uh, what I did have was on my shin a maybe three-inch diameter burn. And when my mother took me to the hospital, the doctor says, that looks that looked like a burn that maybe you got from a radiator. Mm. Those days Which were under the windows. Yeah. So, because everything was, even I remember the windows, window sills or wood trims around yeah. the windows. And um, those it was so hot that those were on fire. And the fire hadn't even reached it yet. So those things were hot, and they were the farthest away from right, the fire. Right, and it, and, and, they, and they were outside, too. Oh, man. They were those smoke. I, I don't know, remember if I saw flames, but I remember smoke, distinctly right. smoke coming from. So that I might, might have gotten burned from there, too. Yeah. So you, you hit the ground, and it was almost instantaneously that the roof caved in? A uh, few seconds. Yeah. And that was it for that second floor? Yeah. No. For that room. Oh, for the... That's terrible. Where your brother... Where was your brother? Because he wasn't in room 210. He was in, uh, I think, room 213. And that was across the hall and a little bit farther from the stairwell where the fire came up. And that side of the hallway didn't have any windows, right? Uh, yes, they did, but it, it looked out at a courtyard. Okay. And um, his, you know, since he was farther away from from the uh, origin of the fire, most of the children in his room died of smoke inhalation. So when my, uh, my father said, when he went to identify the bodies, his body was pretty much not burnt, but yeah. my sister's was. Yeah, because she was closer to the fire. Did you console your parents? Like, how were they solely focused on you? How, how did that? Because I can't even imagine how did that play out for you after the fire. I don't. You know, I think by me just being there, I w- was consoling. But I, you know, I was a child. I'm, I didn't know how to console people. Yeah, I remember at the wake, of, um uncle or some something. Was <clears throat> kept on telling me, keep your chin up. I said, what does that even mean? <laughs> right. I was telling yourself, right? But um, yeah, that I, you know, they as a parent, and I'm a parent and a grandparent, and I I could never go through with with the no. There was no, half of the grief is my my mental illness was watching them. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Did you see a change in your parents? Like, what? how did they change after that? You know, my mother, um, she was always quiet, and she she stayed quiet, more so maybe. I remember um, she would go into her bedroom, shut the door, and i hear her crying, you know, after that. That was a regular thing. She didn't want you to see her crying? Right. And my father, he was a real ball buster, funny, and yeah. after that. No. no. What did your uh, father do? He was, well, he, they had a pizza place on Chicago Avenue, 
and they just had closed it, and then he was driving a truck. But I think he was off that day, the, uh, the fire, because he, he ran over there when he heard the school was on fire. Oh, he was at the scene. Yeah. Many of the parents were, right? right? Yeah. Were you able to f- find him when you no. got out? No. When I, when I was home, after I walked home. Uh, you walked home. Well, that, yeah. that, that, that's the other part I want to get to. Okay. okay. So you fall out the window, however that happened. Now, what, because by modern standards in the Chicago Fire Department, you would be a trauma, Okay. You fell out of the second floor. You were already exposed to heat, smoke, and everything like that. Everything that happened to you up there puts you in the trauma category. So you would be a advanced life support transport to a trauma center. But you fall out the window. What do you do from there? How how were you cared for after that? Because okay. nobody ever touches on. That's a good question. I I got up. And, you know, there were ladders up all around me and firemen and <coughs> hoses. And and I walked over. There was a wall. Uh, there was a, a candy store across the alley. And there was a wall, the wall of the building. And there were multiple children sitting against that wall. Who were survivors. Survivors. Some of them had their clothes burnt off. Some of them were severely burnt. Some of them were bleeding. So I, to answer that question, I, I, would, I just had, my face was probably black and my clothes were black as soot. There were a lot more cases than me that needed more, more attention. I was able to still walk. But and, you, you weren't picked up by any medical professional or anything like that? No. And you, you didn't go to the hospital immediately, right? No. Did you just find your parents? I walked um, around the school past the courtyard that I was talking about earlier. I remember as I was walking past the courtyard, there was an iron fence, and I heard that the firemen couldn't get in there because the fence, the gate was locked. Right. So they had a, a heavy-duty rope tied to that into a fire truck, and they were pulling it off the... Did it work? I guess so. I I kept walking. <laughs> I just wanted to go home. It sounds like some Cicero stuff right yeah, there, huh, yeah, yeah, You got to do what you got to do. do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, unusual. But um, so I lived a block away. So I walked down the alley because they had an alley there, and one of the neighbors saw me when I was halfway home, and she, she um, what are you doing without your coat? And she just took me home. So you're. <laughs> This is um, so unbelievable. You're around in December. You've just survived this fire, and you're just on your own. Your neighbor looks out the window, and there is just a charred Ron Sarno yeah. trying to walk home, right? Pretty much. Jeez. Well, she was in the alley, too. She yeah. was going to the fire. God dang. Who is a 10-year-old has made a conscious decision that there's other people that need more care than him, so he's just going to remove himself. Right. Yes, you he, had that. And I just wanted to get home. I just. Yeah. There, there were so many scenes there that was... So horrific. When you got home, were your dad went to the fire, so you probably passed him on the way. So you got home. Was your mom there? I think my mother was there. Right. Okay. With a with a neighbor. Okay. And she just got home from work. And um, I was glad to be home. And uh, she asked where my sister was, and I was I was. God, that's got to be a tough I, conversation I, oh, for a ten-year-old when your mom asks. Well, I, I said I, I told her to jump, and she wouldn't jump. And God know, damn, that's Ron. all I could say. You know, yeah. I thought they would, they were, be angry at sure. me. Sure, 
That's a natural for, thing for a 10 year old. Yeah. Like for not being able to save her. But you weren't at that time, you weren't sure, but you had pretty well assumed what had happened to your sister. Well, they were probably thinking the worst since I was home and she wasn't home. And right. My brother wasn't home, but, um, they were just wondering where she was. Was she okay? Right. When was it that you actually knew that you had lost your brother and sister? Uh, later on, probably about eight. That same day. That night. Yeah, okay. that same night. Uh, my father and his brothers, my uncles, were going to different hospitals. They split up, and they couldn't find anybody in the hospitals. So the last resort was the morgue. And that's when they called back and said, you know, they found them both at the morgue. That was, yeah, 8, 9 o'clock. It was, I remember. And both your dark. parents went to that? No, it was just my father and okay. my uncles. And I don't even think my father was the first one to find them. My uncle was. Yeah. And he identified them. I was talking to somebody when I was watching the documentary that how could, and, you know, you kind of confirmed it. You said that. You think about it every day, but how could you go and stand next to a campfire or light a fireplace and have that like smell that burning wood without you being transported back to that horrific day for you? Do you still have right. that? It, yeah, I still. There's a certain uh, um, when like there's smoke, triggers. It, like what other yeah, triggers just, you? It, it just the smell, and I say that's that smell again. Not all smoke, but. It, Sure. Maybe it's like a dirtier is, type of smoke right, rather than var, a... Varnish right. Varnish. Like yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah we, and that brings me back immediately. And they... Now, what struck me also in the documentary was that they, they returned your coats to you. Was it, Were you yeah. one of those no. children that was... My, no. Uh, well, the area I was in, the coats were probably were burned. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but fire fire sirens still bring me back when I hear a fire truck. Really? Another thing that really brought me back was 9-11 when those people were jumping out of the building. And, you know, most people say, what what would urge somebody, how bad could it be to jump? I, I know how bad it could be, mm -hmm. you know, I, even though I at, wasn't at up. At 10 years old, you learned that lesson. Right. Even though I wasn't up 80 floors, you know. Well, it, it was 80 well, floors. 80 yeah. floors, two yeah. floors. It, right. it doesn't matter. The decision-making right. is the yeah. same. Yeah. Right. To kind of To kind of lighten the mood a little bit, were you friends with Jonathan Cain? Welcome back to the next episode of Will Joey Matthews Answer Josh Hill's Phone Call? Here we go. Take two. I'm calling my boss, the leader of the Frontline Mortgage Team, Joey Matthews. Hey, you reached Joey Matt. Sorry I missed your call, but if you can leave me a brief message, including your name and your preferred contact number, I will be sure to get right back to you. Have an amazing day. That was part two of Will Joey Matthews Answer Josh Hill's phone call here on Chicago's Bravest Stories. He has not. He probably thinks I got some kind of drama with a loan file or something, but... Um, Anyways, he's our he's the leader of the frontline team. Uh, many people, if you ask around, have worked with him. The guy is as solid as they come. Um, sets a high standard for the team. So, if he answered the phone, we could ask him about that. But <laughs> actually, I'm leaving a message right now, and he's my boss, so I'm not going to do that. All right, boss, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. That episode of Will Joey Answer brought to you by the Frontline Mortgage Team.
Okay. Because no. it wasn't until that documentary that I had any idea. And, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s that Jonathan Cain was the keyboard player for the band Journey, which is one of Josh's favorite bands. Am I wrong? If not the favorite. Really? Bands. Thank you. Yeah, it's up there. No kidding. Yeah. So and 18 top 40 hits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. I, it, I was, I'm a White Sox fan, so when they won the World Series, that was their song. Yeah. Don't Stop Believing. Right, right, right. But I never, they show the induction speech to the Hall of Fame, and he, he references that. Yeah. And when I watched it, I'm like, am I on the wrong channel? I, I thought the same thing. Right. I was like, I didn't I, realize it either. I must have pressed the wrong thing yeah. on YouTube or whatever. Yeah. I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of interesting anyway. So, but yeah, it, and, and I had, we have talked about this fire on this podcast a bunch of times and it's never come up. I, I had no clue. And it, that was one of those little interesting tidbits about that fire that like blew my mind. I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't know that until the 50th anniversary, and he showed up and he made a special song. Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yes. Yeah, but he said he, he mentioned in the documentary that the song "Don't Stop Believing" was his. He uh, produced or um, that came from the fire when his, his father said, "Don't right after, after the fire, don't stop believing, move, go on." Yeah. Right. I, I know I've been jumping all, I've been jumping around here. This is usually the time where Corey or Steve brings me back here. Josh. Oh yeah, we're jumping around. We're not <laughs> going a chronological order, but no. I'm, I'm a guest host, so I'm not trying to steer the ship. Well, I, I'm trying to stay out of chronological order because it's more interesting that way. Okay, don't you I, find it to be? I do because you know what? I, I I'm dying to go back. He, I'm still well, have bring, this bring image. Us, bring us back. I, well, I have this image of these 1958 CFD firefighters, World War II veterans. They're doing what they do with this fire. I'm, I see him hooking up this rope and pulling this gate, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's one little tidbit. And so being what this pod is and in this community and who listens to this, I think it's, I'd love to hear more about what you viewed as far as like their response. Um, like, what did you see? You know, you mentioned the ladders, you mentioned the rope thing and you mentioned this or that. If you go in a little bit about that, I don't think it's really spoken about much. And that's something that we, we talk about this fire every year. Um, a lot of those schools were built to a similar blueprint for the archdiocese. And so every year, uh, Brian Colaga, who's also been on here. Yes. He's the other lieutenant at the house that I work at. We go to one. We have one in our town. And we go there on December 1st. And we talk about this fire and what happened there and this and that. And, and um, like I said, a lot of pic uh, firehouses have this Life magazine cover. You know, this very famous image of uh, Richard Scheidt with, with right. carrying the boy. And what this does is it gets our, our head in the game. So it, it makes us think like, hey, th those guys went into work and they had their coffee and they're talking this and that, but then it, you know what I mean, that afternoon, look what happened. So this helps keep our head in the game. So I'm kind of interested in that that side of it, Vince, if we can like maybe see what, yeah. you know. What, what was your first encounter with a fireman after you came out the window? What do you remember, well, what do you remember seeing? Because you said you saw them laddering the building and doing that. What, what else did you see? Well, when I hit the ground, I saw them. They were around me. <clears throat> um, so a couple firemen saw you fly out that window. Probably. And I, I like to get to the story about Joe. Um, yes, please. Sure. When, when, it, when it's appropriate. But it's appropriate right now. Okay, it's right okay. now. <laughs> so, so, you know, for the last um, 
65 years, 64 years, I thought I jumped out the window saying, people would say, how did you get out? And I would say, I jumped. And in my mind, I knew I didn't make a conscious decision to jump. I was hanging out and I was probably pushed or maybe I just pushed myself out. But um, during the past year with the 65th anniversary, a lot of, um, especially through the documentary, I found out there was a fireman. His name was Joseph Murray. Yep. And this fireman, he was familiar with the school because I think he went there. And um, he crawled, he got up the ladder, came into room 210, and he started, um, he knew that he had the feeling that the room was going to um, flash over. Is that what? Is that yeah, the right? that is, yeah. Yeah. And um, he started grabbing boys, and mostly boys because he, they have white shirts on, and that's all he can see in the dark smoke. Grabbing boys and just throwing, by their belts, and just throwing them out the window. Right. Thinking they had a better chance going down or just pushing them down a ladder. Well, you have no chance in there. So right, you, right. You, So he started doing this. And um, when he was honest, when he saw that it was going to flash over, I guess firemen have an inkling when that's going to happen. When he saw that this was going to happen, he started heading out the window and he saw a couple like by the window and he just pushed them out. And I have a feeling. You think that that's how you got I'm, out the I'm window? Right. So basically well, Joe Murray saved my life. Well, well, we we spoke earlier, and you had thought it was a Jim Murray, and I had uh, former Commissioner James Joyce look into the names uh, for that day with the help of the Greater Chicago Fire Museum and Father McDallas. Now, there was a Jim Murray who was working, but uh, based on where he was, it, it was highly unlikely that he would have actually made that fire, although there were hundreds and hundreds of firemen at that fire, and um, he was actually on duty that day, but my understanding is it was highly unlikely that he wouldn't be there. Now, Joe Murray was actually on duty at Engine 43's house, which is at, like, California and Milwaukee, so they're going to be there for sure. And throughout the... and. He talks to of him actually being there, but he was actually assigned to 43 on that day. And just based on the timeline that he probably would have, if there were already ladders and stuff in place, it would have put him in a perfect timing to be in that window, grabbing kids and tossing them out the window when you say his. So the likelihood of it actually being Joe Murray who saved your life are pretty good. Everything seems to line up that... Joe Murray, if that was how you got out the window, was the one who saved your life. I believe so. I believe that. And it's just, you know, and, and you know, Josh, if you look at that article right there, what are these guys wearing? No hood. They were having basically leather yeah. raincoats. Yeah. And nothing. I mean, yeah, is, leather helmet, is Dick Scheid even wearing gloves or anything like that? Like, these guys were going in with basically nothing, grabbing right. kids and <clears throat> no breathing apparatus at that time. It, yeah, it wasn't it was, invented yet. So you you look at guys from that, that generation of firefighting; they're not protected like we are today. And you have this 
horrific. And like you said, Josh, these were all veterans of World War II, right? Yeah, many and, of them. And yeah. um, that's what the fire department consisted of. Majority, majority of the firefighters in that era were all veterans. And these guys are coming out saying that this was the most horrific thing that, they's, that they've ever seen. And, you know, these guys have already seen a ton of stuff in their lifetimes. And a lot of them, including Dick Scheid, was never the same after that. We've had his son on the podcast talking about, he's like, yeah, my father was never the same after that. He didn't want to talk about it. And when he did talk about it, he was like, that was the worst thing ever. So it, it made an impact not just on you as a survivor, but also all the guys that responded to that fire. And going back, you see a bunch of firemen working. Did you, were you seeing these guys throwing more ladders? Were they moving more hose? Did you actually get to see the guys from Chicago Fire Department? Did anything stand out to you about the fire department? This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Sports and Ortho. If you're a city employee and you get hurt, you have the option to request Sports and Ortho when you're being assigned some physical therapy, right? Yeah, absolutely. We can always choose us. We're on the city plan, so if you want to come to us, we are happy to see you. Yeah, you're, you're not locked into whoever they send you to. You can always make a request to go to a better facility if you'd like. And Sports and Ortho is a good alternative. We think so. I just remember the ladders up against the building and the hoses everywhere on the ground. There were hoses everywhere. And they, the firemen, and a lot of them had the pole with the hook. Sure. Yeah, the pike pole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Again, I just wanted to go home. Well, the, if you got... By the time you hit the ground, if these guys were already going up ladders, they got they got there pretty quick, huh? Yeah, I but I didn't see a fireman until I hit the ground because they right. were, you know, um, but there were a lot of them around when I when I got up to move uh, from the fall. Um, but I I heard and I think it was on the documentary that they whoever called the fire in gave them the address of the rectory went to the wrong address yeah Yeah, i've heard that that is that was one of the 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 big issues is that they got the wrong address because they didn't get they got the rectory not the school right right right. but that fire and that smoke traveled so fast that even if they would have got there they maybe even if they would have uh, the incident with the rectory didn't happen. They still would have been had their hands full. Sure, I mean, you, when you see the videos of these guys going at it, it's it's like any like bad fire that you can think of. It's with little equipment, no modern day technology. These guys are fighting a, a fire that would take multiple multiple jurisdictions to mitigate this, but. Now, since you brought up the ladders, I wanted to get your opinion and help vindicate the janitor who took a lot of criticism that it was actually his fault that this took place. But he was the one who threw the first initial ladder to help some of the kids get down. And then he went back in and unlocked the door because there were there were people um, 
what room was would that have been? Um, 207, I think it was. I, I'm not really sure the the room number, but they were locked in. Right. And he went and came and unlocked it, and he actually saved a bunch of kids. But prior to that, during the initial investigation, they were basically blaming this janitor for everything. Correct. And we'll, we'll go into, because that's another whole nother story about um, the cause of the fire. But do you remember the janitor's name? Uh, Mr. Raymond. Okay. Um, maybe John Raymond. Okay. And, and uh, yeah, I remember that he they they blamed him, and I remember even my father um, was pointing the finger at him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he he saved a lot of a lot of children. I mean, he's he's role. been uh, vindicated since then that he didn't have anything to do with the 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 fire, and he did save so many children by his actions that day. Um, and one of the things, and I, I know this is so far removed from you, but maybe just because you were involved, maybe you, you've heard the stories or you, you know, of the, the child who they thought, uh, started the fire, who he admitted to starting the fire. And then he is dismissed by Chicago police department, but then, uh, convicted of, setting three more fires actually in Cicero. In Cicero, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ironically enough, with yeah. Josh Hill here. Yeah. And I believe the uh, it was inadmissible the way the, the confession, and that was what it was ruled inadmissible. Is that Some judge made some obscure ruling on it and just like, no, we sent them home to, to his family, just dismissed it. But have you heard the stories of that child who, who said he started the fire? Uh, yes, I, I've... I, I didn't hear the story until a couple of years later, but uh, it said that he was in in his class towards the end of the day. I think he was a fifth grader. I was a fourth grader. I think he was a fifth grader. And maybe around 2.30, he has to be excused to go to the bathroom. And And this is all hearsay. I heard he told one of his classmates that, I'm going to do something where I don't have to come back to class. You'll mm -hmm. see. And uh, he went down to the basement where there was a, uh, they used to have these cardboard drums. Yeah. Right. With steel rims. And he was, it w and found one that was full with paper and he started throwing matches, lit matches into the drum. Do we have to say this is all allegedly? Allegedly, yeah. <laughs> Do we, this do we, is hearsay. Yeah, I mean, true. Right. It was never proven. Right. Right. It's your journalistic responsibility, Vince, to <laughs> not sensationalize right. it and say, Allegedly. you know. But that's that's the story I heard. Okay. And um, the other part of the story is the dias allegedly the diocesis <laughs> uh, wanted it to be snuffed out. Sure, oh, sure. I'm well, sure. there were there even went so far as to interview the children and I wanted to find out, did you get interviewed? Cause there was speculation that one of the kids was smoking in the hallways and stuff like that. And so the police department went and interviewed all the children yeah. the, and uh, like, were you smoking in the hallway? Did you, were you part of that investigation? No. Nobody but ever I, asked. I, I knew a couple. Oh, so they didn't, they didn't ask all of the kids. They just went and asked specific kids. I guess they didn't ask me. Okay. Because um, they knew that Ron Sonner was, 
squared away. Was it a smoker? Yeah, I believed it was snuffed. You know, in, in those days, the, the Catholic Church swung tremendous power. Oh, the political power. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, were, they were the most powerful thing in the city at that yes. time. Yeah. The oh, Cardinal yeah. and Daly. Yeah. And so I, I think they probably had something to do with it. Yeah. Well, know. the demographic of that neighborhood uh, at that time w- was mostly Italian, correct? Correct. It was all Italian. I think... I can't remember who said it in the uh, documentary, but they were like, I, I, was it you who said, yes. I never saw a blonde-haired, right. blue-eyed kid yeah. until, yeah. until yeah. you were well, out of was, school? I found it. that interesting as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid. <laughs> I, I, yeah. never saw, I didn't realize I was exotic until now. <laughs> Only on TV I saw uh, blonde-haired people. And then when I moved out, and then when I moved out of the neighborhood and, uh, to a Polish, and it was still Polish-Italian, there were blondes. Yeah. But uh, I... Everybody I knew was Italian. Yeah. Well, they uh, in the documentary, they're talking about uh, everybody went to church, and then you could smell the gravy um, on the way, on the walk home. Yeah, that's correct. That yeah. was Sundays. Yeah. Everybody had Sunday spaghetti. Yeah. Um, so d- your family didn't stay in Humboldt Park for that much longer after that, did they? We moved out in uh, 1961. Okay. Where'd you go? We went to the uh, northwest side uh, around Diversity in Austin. Okay. And um, they there were just too many bad memories. Oh, I'm sure. There, yeah, I drive know. past it every day. Yeah. and Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of people moved. But we moved to the, the uh, I think that's Craig, Belmont, Cragen area. Yeah. yeah. Where I went to St. Ferdinand's and finished up my grammar school and high school St. Pat's. Oh, you were St. Pat's guy. Yes, oh, sir. too bad Steve's yeah. not here. Oh, let's see. Oh, you okay. guys could give each other the secret handshake. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Steve, yeah. Well, uh, man, uh, we will take a break here, and then we'll come back. But uh, I got a couple more questions for you. So, all right, stand by. The opinions and views are that of Chicago's bravest stories and their guests. They do not necessarily reflect the views of any municipal governments, fire protection districts, fire departments, EMS, or law 